0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. As we begin today's program, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which we broadcast today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. I'd also like to acknowledge the custodians of all the lands from where anybody is listening to this podcast today. So Work With Purpose is back for 2023, and what better way than a conversation that draws attention to the diversity of people we are fortunate to have working for all Australians here at the Australian Public Service. Today, we discuss Neurodiversity, and when I say neurodiversity, according to definitions provided by Dr. Nick Walker, I mean the diversity of human minds where there is an infinite variation in neurocognitive functioning. In this context, neurodivergent means having a mind that functions in ways which diverge significantly from the dominant societal standards of normal. Neurodivergence, the state of being neurodivergent, can be largely or entirely genetic and innate or it can be largely or entirely produced by brain-altering experience or some combination of the two. Workplaces stand much to gain from making workplaces more inclusive of neurodiversity, Research published in the Harvard Business Review suggests that teams with neurodivergent professionals in some roles can be 30% more productive than those without them. Inclusion and integration of neurodivergent professionals can also boost team morale and I can attest to the benefits of neurodivergence because here at Content Group, one of our talented team identifies as neurodivergent and she is fantastically productive and a great influence around the office. In the public sector, there is still more we can do to be inclusive, where we have a higher than average unemployment rate for people with autism. Today we discuss neurodiversity in the workplace, how the public sector might go about making workplaces more inclusive and changing the story from one about challenges to one of opportunity. Joining me in the studio today are three public service thought leaders, Lee Steele, who is the First Assistant Secretary of the Intergovernmental Relations and Reform Branch at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and she is also an Ability Network Champion. Her division is responsible for Commonwealth state relations, including National Cabinet, and advice to the Prime Minister and Cabinet on health and aged care policy. Lee's previous senior executive roles include land transport policy in the Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Communications, and in the Cabinet Secretariat in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Lee is also PMC's Ability Network Champion. Welcome to you, Lee.
1: Thanks, David. It's lovely to be here.
0: Next up, we have Robin Edmonds, who is the co chair of the PMNC Ability Network. She's also an inclusion and diversity advisor at PMNC. Robin has been co-chair of the pm Ability Network since 2021 and led a range of disability inclusion and accessibility initiatives across the department. Her ongoing advocacy is informed by her lived experience of queer, neurodivergent, and disabled identity. Good to have you, Robin. Thanks, David. And finally, we're joined by Andrew Pfeiffer from the PMNC Ability Network Executive Team. Andrew is also an advisor in the behavioural economics team at the Australian Government, which is Beta, uh, which is a part of PMNC. And after discovering he uh, is autistic, Andrew co-founded the ATO's Neurodiversity Network, which now has over. 600 members. Andrew is also the co founder and co chair of the cross agency APS Neurodiversity Community of practice. And after an incredible community response to his recent TED Talk, Andrew is now a highly sought after speaker and advocate for neurodiversity inclusion. Andrew, welcome to Work With Purpose. Thank you so much, David. So today we want to take a a slightly different approach and we want to go into the future. So let's set the scene. It's 2028 And public sector workplaces have reviewed and improved their work environments to optimally leverage the skill sets of neurodivergent and neurotypical people. Now, this is a question to all of you, and I might start with you, Lee. Um, Can you paint us a picture of what that might look like if we get it right into the future?
1: Thanks David. I'd like to see a more capable APS that reflects the public we serve including more representation of neurodivergent people at senior levels but also managers and senior leaders who model inclusive behaviours. This needs to be enabled by a stronger focus on outcomes and impact, rather than discrete behaviours and styles. We need to reimagine what does leadership look like and be more flexible in the way we um, conceive of leadership and recognise the impacts we have without having a fixed view of styles. There's great diversity in our people, so we need to think about how jobs can match people and not take a one-size-fits-all approach.
0: And so in terms then of, you mentioned that point of, around leadership, what advice do you have for people to to take on that leadership and, and to be able to achieve those outcomes that you speak about?
1: I think it's to, as an individual, look inside yourself and think, where can I be more flexible and listen to other people and see what they bring to the table that I might not myself bring and open up conversations with your teams about how you can work in a team environment to make the mess best of everyone's capability and that may mean some additional flexibility or different ways of working but it can enable a richer uh, outcome in terms of a more diverse um, perspective on what we do in our program delivery and our policy design in the way we engage with our community. And at the heart of what we do in the public service, it is about serving our community. And given the representation of disability and neurodivergence in our community, we need to have that capability within our own system, but also be able to engage with a a breadth of experience in the community more broadly.
0: Okay. Robin, to you, uh, welcome to 2028. Um, wow, describe,
2: that was good.
0: <laughs> describe it for me. What, what are you seeing? What are some of those behaviours that you're seeing that where we've made that improvement and we're really working well to get the benefit from having this wonderful diverse group of people working in the interests of all Australians?
3: I think for me, what that looks like in you know ideal world 2028 is um, just accessibility by default and what i mean by that is that every element of the workplace it's no longer a question of what do we have to change what do we have to spend what do we have to do to to get a diverse or a disabled or a neurodivergent individual into the workplace but knowing that that workplace will be accessible, will be welcoming, whether that's a matter of you know, the communications being accessible, whether it's the workplace itself, the office, um, or, or whether it's just our modes of work, like what Lee was starting to talk about there as well, the way in which we relate and engage with our staff.
0: Yeah, but so again, in terms of achieving that though, um, what are some of the things that you've seen in the past that have worked to start to develop this culture of acceptance and and normalisation uh, of what you, you you're talking about?
3: I think if you want to talk about really visible examples… Flexible work arrangements and working from home during COVID, that's certainly been a big one. Um, And these benefit so many different cross-sections of our society, not only those who are immunocompromised, um, but also those who have childcare responsibilities and, yeah, those who are neurodivergent um, or have other needs. So that's just sort of one example of of how it could look good. But I, I think there are a lot of other examples that the APS has been working on more recently. The APSC has worked on things like having a uh, reasonable adjustments passport. The idea being that you can talk about what kind of adjustments you need in the workplace and store that information together in one place. And when you move throughout the department or even across the APS, you might be able to take that with you. Cut down the time that it takes from you to get in the door to being productive and engaging with your work. And yeah. these are really simple things. It's, it's really just being able to communicate what people need. So I think that that open and accessible communication at every phase, is where you start to see the difference with you know very little, uh, I think, outlay as well for the organisation.
0: Yeah, okay. And for you, Andrew, we're in 2028. What are you seeing um, that would would give us the confidence, I suppose, and the satisfaction that we have made progress?
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that I would love to see and I think we can see in 2028 is recruitment processes that actually test a candidate's aptitude for the job Recruitment processes that don't massively overvalue the ability of candidates to write job applications in a very specific way or to answer interview questions in a very specific way. At the moment with job applications, there's a level of ambiguity that many neurodivergent people can find challenging around how the written application is assessed. And then when you go into an interview, you have to answer the questions in a very specific way, often the STAR format. Sometimes you'll get multi-part questions where you don't even have the questions written down in front of you. And so you have to simultaneously hold on to each of the parts of the question in your head, along with thinking about. What's the most relevant example that I can use to respond to this question? And that's just a really bad way yeah. to test a candidate's <laughs> aptitude for the job. That sounds stressful. It
0: is. <laughs> <laughs> so how much change, though, needs to take place for, you know, for something like that to, to be reformed? Is it a big change or, it, or, or a small change to be able to make it more accessible?
2: I I should say from the outset that I'm not a recruitment professional, and so my understanding of legislative requirements is limited compared to, say, recruitment professionals. And I should also say that anything I'm expressing here is only my own view and not that of the department. Um, But I think there's some low-hanging fruit that we could achieve very, very quickly. Um, We can educate interview panels on things like if if someone's not giving you eye contact, it's not because they're a less good candidate for a particular position, many neurodivergent people struggle to give eye contact, myself included. And I think one of the things that we could very easily do is make it the default to give candidates the interview questions a short time before the interview so that that way they've got something to prepare from and that way they can actually demonstrate, at least to a greater extent than a traditional interview, their their aptitude for the job. So, as part of APS
0: reform, there there is a focus on ensuring that the public service workforce does represent the community that it serves. Can you tell us a bit more about why it's worthwhile making workplaces more, Neurodiversity inclusive. It is a
2: it's a difficult word, isn't it? Sometimes trying to trying to get it out for sure. Um, and <laughs> this is this is something that's very close to my heart because I used to work for the APS Reform office at PMNC as well. And when I spoke at TEDx Canberra, one of the analogies that I used to illustrate neurodiversity or neurodivergence more to the point is that of the spiky skills profile. So what the Spiky skills profile says is that for people that are neurotypical, their strengths and challenges, if you were to plot them on a graph, represent something of a gentle wave. Whereas for neurodivergent people, their strengths and challenges represent a much larger wave. So their strengths and their challenges are much yeah. more pronounced. Mm. And as we, mo- um, as we move to such a data-driven environment, as we move in, in, in an environment where things like IT, cybersecurity are really, really important, they're fields that many neurodivergent people are particularly gifted in. Okay. So, Robin, to
0: you, when, when you contrast that to what workplaces look like at the moment, what are some of the challenges that neurodivergent people are, are facing at the moment? And these might be quite unique to individuals, but could you just highlight some of those for us?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are two concepts I'm going to bring into this that I think will come up a lot, and one of them is uh, intersectionality, another really easy word to say, Uh, (laughs) uh, and the other one is a bit of discussion about these sort of models of disability, which I know is another question that you'd received, so just touching on that. Mm. But when it comes to the, the challenges that people face, their experiences tend to not be one size fits all. The the saying when it comes to neurodivergent people is always when you've met one neurodivergent person you've met one neurodivergent person, <laughs> um, and that's you know never truer than when you're trying to organise a good environment for them in the workplace. So um, you know those challenges also layer with you know various other things. So you know my you know how how my autism exhibits might be quite different to someone else or you know Andrew's. Yeah. Um, and you know, similarly with with other you know disability or, or with um, various sort of needs that you might have, um, your needs will be different. But for every individual, their layers of diversity and experiences kind of form a, a complex shading or colour that that gives you their intersectionality. So that is you might have additional challenges if you are neurodivergent and you're also a woman or maybe you're you know, a younger manager and you're trying to really sort of establish yourself in the workplace. So that's just a quick nod to intersectionality, which we commonly refer to as well with other forms of diversity, particularly people of color and uh, cultural and linguistic diversity uh, and various other factors in term so once you have that that's that's one piece of the puzzle right everybody has a complex now, little but bit
0: just in terms of that before we move on to that that how hard is it to make those assessments that you're talking about because mm-hmm. as you mentioned you know quite reasonably every and every individual is an individual and so each of their needs needs to be dealt with, mm. you know, in order to get the best out of them. So again, is it, is it complex? Is it difficult? Or is it really just a mindset shift? To I think to, it, as, 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 um, as Lee was suggesting earlier, it's really just about being more open and a little bit more patient.
3: Yeah, it's absolutely a mindset shift. Don't assume, you know, that somebody is going to need the same things as somebody else in the same situation. And you just need to be open to that. And the other thing is, I think just the attitude needs to shift, and mm-hmm. that's probably the biggest barrier at the moment to getting support for a lot of people, is that they are really scared about the stigma, around either you know sort of coming out uh, as as neurodivergent or or as disabled if they identify that way, uh, how their managers going to respond, and how the organisation will see that in terms of a commitment or an expenditure or, oh, do we want to invest this much money? And that is the attitude that that really needs to change as well. Mm. Um, And a lot of people will find that they're self-selecting out of even asking for support because they're worried about what that stigma or or what that response might be, Mm. because it's not something you can take back. Mm.
0: Now, Sorry, I I interrupted you because I think the second point you were going to was around this notion of models Mm. of disability.
3: Yes, I love a tangent. Um, <laughs> so I think this comes to the attitude point. We often in Australia you might have heard terms like the charity model and the social model of disability. Um, a lot of disability advocates talk about that, and it applies to reasonable adjustments more broadly. But in Australia, we often find ourselves landing in this charity model of disability, where yeah. someone has a disability, and we, you know, we open the door for them. It's oh, that's so nice of you to open the door instead of. <laughs> Why the hell wasn't that door made accessible in the first place? Yeah. How is somebody using a wheelchairman to get into this building, you know? And right, it's a matter of expectations. This you know, charity model? No, I don't think it's charity to expect somebody to to contribute and do their best in the workplace you know that is them adding value to your organization and as the stats you put up mentioned and more recent ones from the Australian Network on Disability it increases retention morale productivity creativity innovation uh, having that diversity so the social model of disability is starting to embed accessibility within that and then there's also you know more recently that movement towards the human rights model of disability that is don't I have a right to contribute to the workplace I'm a part of? And don't I have a right to really, you know, even have the opportunity to contribute in the way that others do?
0: Hmm. So, Lee, um, how can workplaces better tap into the benefits and, of having people who are neurodivergent that such that it can improve work uh, and, and also build those policies and processes that make sure that you are you know, gathering up those, you know, those benefits. Because, again, I know I speak from personal experience here at Content Group. It is, It has been wonderful. It's been wonderful for the team here, and it's been wonderful for our output. Some of the, it's just... Next level, the quality that we're getting from from that team member.
1: I think it's a great question. And I think um, part of the challenge is there's no one size fits all, but it does start with a mindset change, as Robin said. I think it's trying to look at the opportunity to attract and retain talent and have that talent thrive in the APS. We have an imperative too. We've got a really competitive jobs market and there's some really great people... Who want to be in the workplace who aren't being enabled or we might bring them in but we don't enable them to thrive so it starts with that mindset change but in terms of what we do um, it has to be um, bespoke to each environment uh, that we've got a lot of diversity in our work environments in the APS very diverse roles um, very diverse requirements very diverse sort of Uh, capability sets we're looking for and in some ways that is great because neurodivergence is also very diverse you know we've got um, people who have extreme focus who have creativity Mm. who have um, excellent data skills who are great uh, uh, effectively auditing type skills so it is very much about trying to work out how do you match skills to the outcomes and impact you're trying to have and try to use those capabilities rather than expect every individual to be the perfect worker, which mm. I don't know that anyone is. Sure. <laughs> but it is it is that sense of trying to um, build a team with disparate skills that works well as a team, but is works for that environment. Um, and it's also, again, when we're thinking about what we do in the public service, we've got to understand, well, what's the impact we're trying to have on the community? We, we do have a lot of work across the public service, which is about service delivery, which is about working with the community. And if... Uh, a large proportion of our community is neurodivergent, then understanding that is an important part of what we do. Mm. So we can tap into it with a more diverse workforce and being more strategic about how we work, use that workforce. But I think it's also imperative that we engage with the community really well and get that feedback about what's working and what's not working. Are there services we're providing or programs we're providing that work for some people but not for others? And how do we ensure that those people who are missing out currently, where can we work with them differently? Mm. So I think that's what I'm talking about, but there's, it's a tricky one because there's not a s- silver bullet that's no. the perfect um, solution for everyone.
0: Uh, but interestingly, in the APS, you know, people are time poor, you, yes. know, it, you know, and crushed by time and demands and the needs to deliver, and this takes. T- A little bit of time, doesn't it, to to get it right? Now, maybe not a lot of time, but people will be thinking, oh, is this just another thing that I have to do on top of everything else that I've got to do? So how do we change that in such a way that people accept that this is just has to be done? I think to that, get the benefits because yeah, the benefits oh, are real.
1: It's true. It's, well, I guess it's like many things where you've got to invest up front to get the benefit. Yeah. And that can be as simple as with every new team member having that conversation, which is what is it that enables you to be at your best? How do you like to work? How do you communicate? How do you? Where are your skills and where are your you know, weaknesses? And we'll work on your strengths. We'll work on your skills and make use of that. And that applies for people with... Uh, without neurodivergence as well it's everybody has different skills and strengths and different preferences in how they work and that should be an investment everyone should make in a team environment in a workplace to make sure we're being as effective as possible because the amount of time and effort you save by having some of those discussions up front Mm. is worth it Um, beyond that in terms of jobs and skills matching I think there can be more we can do to try to articulate what we're looking for better in terms of what is the outcome, not the way in which we do the job, Um, a bit like uh, Andrew was saying as well.
0: So, Andrew, building better workplaces obviously uh, needs people to work together, and there's a question from Carolyn McDonnell on LinkedIn, uh, and she asks of you, do you have some tips or guidance for managers on how to support neurodiverse employees in the workplace? How
2: can they be allies? Very good question. There's a phrase that I really love, and it says, nothing about us without us. Okay. I'm going to repeat it again for (laughs) emphasis. (laughs) Okay. Nothing about us without us. One of the great things that managers can do is listen to neurodivergent employees and to learn from us. For me personally, before I found out that I'm autistic, neurodiversity wasn't even a word that I knew of. And so for people that are neurotypical, they may not know what neurodiversity is, but they can learn. They can find out from us. They can ask us about neurodiversity. That's assuming we've already told them that we're neurodivergent, of course. So what I'd say is if there's something you don't understand about a neurodivergent employee, why they find something particularly challenging. In an appropriate way, seek to learn from them. Mm. Don't automatically jump to performance management processes (laughs) (laughs) to deal with a particular challenge that you're not sure how to deal with. Figure out how to harness their strengths. Even think about how you can design the role that they're in to make the most of their strengths. I'd also encourage managers to join the employee networks of your local agency. That really takes the onus off of neurodivergent staff. Many neurodivergent staff are members of an ability network or a neurodiversity network, but that's self-advocacy. That's an emotional labour. It's something we're passionate about, but it's also an emotional labour. It takes often extra time. Often we're putting in time outside of business hours as well as time during business hours. And so I'd really encourage managers to join your local networks and take the onus off of neurodivergent staff. Hmm.
0: Now, there's a follow-up question on Twitter from Leon Bruin Higgins, who asks... To you, Andrew, how can we best support and champion neurodiverse public servants firstly as valued and equal members of the APS and support them to make valued contributions to the public good? In this context, can you please perhaps elaborate a bit on the importance of language to achieve this?
2: Language is really important, but like Lee said earlier, there's no one size fits all. I follow a lot of other neurodiversity advocates on platforms like LinkedIn, and one of the things that I've learned from them is that there's a movement towards what we consider identity-first language. Mm -hmm. I'm autistic. I'm ADHD. Over and above, person-first language. I have autism. I have ADHD. And... I think it's good to be aware of those general trends. But at the end of the day, everyone has their own preferences, just like everyone has their own pronouns. And so learn from us. Learn from us as individuals. As Robin said earlier, if you've met one neurodivergent person, (laughs) you've met one neurodivergent (laughs) person. Yeah.
3: I think in the APS we really want always to have like one term one phrase and we want to know that yeah. that is the, right. that is industry standard <laughs> yeah. right best practice and for those yeah. people who are listening to this thinking yeah. oh no this is you know these mean more questions <laughs> i think it's just good to bear in mind that we're not just talking about terminology here we're talking about identity mm. so you know people are going to to form those opinions based on on how they identify. So yeah, it will be quite individual, but sorry for anyone out there trying to write a dictionary.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Robin, you love talking about building tailored support structures in your role as inclusion and diversity advisor. When you advise workplaces on how to achieve inclusivity, what is the first step that you recommend that they need to take to build such support
2: structures?
3: Now, I think the first thing to bear in mind when you talk about, you know, making workplaces more inclusive and for, for different types is that if you go to any organisation or any manager and you ask, "Are you are you inclusive of you know people with disability or, or or very diverse staff?" They'll all say, "Yes, absolutely." All they need to do is come and tell me, and I'll be right there. Yeah. But um, it's important to bear in mind that uh, you know, as at the last APS census and the uh, inclusion and diversity report published by the APSC last year more than half of all staff who identify as disabled do not feel comfortable sharing that with their agencies. They, they won't report it, they won't tell their agency, they won't tell their manager and that's just of the percentage of people who feel comfortable enough reporting it anonymously which is about eight percent. In the population we know that people with disabilities at least 17 or 18 percent and that's at the last full census that was 2017. Anyway um, So the first thing to bear in mind is less than half at a minimum of of the staff with disability are actually going to be known to you and neurodivergence isn't gathered at all so we don't know who those people are. So the first challenge for an organisation is that you need to be inclusive of everyone in your organisation or those people won't come forward to ask for help. So that's the first big attitude shift. It's not about you know, increasing, maybe you have great structures already and people aren't using them. And the reason they're not being used is because people are scared to come forward or ask their managers. So first thing is, okay, inclusion is for everyone. And then actually you'll find it gets a lot easier because Mm -hmm. everyone will be on board. They will be really supportive. They'll want to put it in their enterprise bargaining. They're going to really want to negotiate for it. So make sure that inclusion is for everyone. In terms of how you can structure that, one of the things that I've worked on recently um, while also doing my master's in strategic communications um, was sort of an inclusive communication guide for for managers and and staff. The idea was it was just talking about your work preferences because I would get this question so often, I have a new manager or I have a new staff member. How do I have the conversation with them about what they need? How do I make it not an accusation of them needing special adjustments, right? Or not being able to meet the standard. How do I make it an organic conversation? Mm. Um, And just like Lee said in that manager conversation, you have to normalize it. Make it so that every manager has that conversation with every staff member. Um, And realize that adjustments are not just about having wheelchair access to your meeting rooms. Adjustments can be things like you know, the noise and lighting levels in your office, allowing mm-hmm. people to wear noise cancelling headphones or yep. tinted glasses to work. It may be recognising that some of your staff are going to perform much better if you ask them a question via email rather than over the phone or vice versa. Uh, or maybe it's ensuring that the way that you're giving feedback or, you know, channeling your, your expectations is really clear. So, um the first thing again you know if it's accessible for everyone then it 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 benefits everyone and if you just have that conversation about actually how, you know what is it that you're good at you know how do you like to work and how do you like to communicate take yourself back one step and think what if not everybody thinks the way i do and wants to communicate the same way i do yeah. then you you've sort of made that first step
0: excellent so lee um Can you think of any outstanding initiatives where some of what we've discussed today is already uh, in practice? And in connection to this, Gordon Douglas on LinkedIn has asked, is the public service considering alternative recruitment formats to a standard job interview, given what Andrew uh, said a little bit earlier in, in one of his answers about the challenges of the traditional approaches to job interviews for neurodivergent people?
1: So I'm not sure I can answer the second question on what people are doing about recruitment. Again it's not my field of expertise. Uh, I believe anecdotally that um, different organisations are looking into alternatives but again it's it's getting that balance with Making sure it's still a merit based process but looking at alternatives. So I, I understand there's work happening, but I, I'm afraid I can't ask answer okay, in any detail. Fair enough. In terms of outstanding initiatives, I, I understand there are some recruitment processes and in, um, in different organizations across the APS. I am wary about whether it's saying whether or not they're a success or whether or not they're outstanding yeah. because I think the test of that is the feedback from the people who've gone through those um, programs themselves as well as the organization. It's both the organization and the employee. You have to both say it's a success. And ideally what I'd like to look for in terms of success is ongoing retention and um, thriving in a career. Yes. Not just getting in the door. That's a good first step. Yes. It's a really good first step. But then you've got to find yeah. a workplace which enables people to thrive Mm. and enables people to have a longer-term career rather than try something for you and it doesn't work out. Mm. So again, I don't know that I can talk to successes, but it is an area where I think it's important that we collect more data Mm. uh, and evaluation and look at what works um, both in terms of that first step of getting people in the door, recruiting, but also then looking at are we then tracking career development, career progression and the ongoing connection um, beyond that first step of getting in the door. Um, As Robin said, we don't really know how many neurodivergent people Mm. we already have in the APS because we don't measure it. Mm. It's something we're looking to do more on. Um, But it's also then um, getting that more qualitative feedback about what works and what doesn't work. And again, it's gotta be from um, the different perspectives of both the people who are neurodivergent maybe trying to come in and try new jobs. but it's also the organisations. Is it working for them? Because again, we have a mission that we have to achieve in terms of service to the community as well.
0: Mm. Okay, so listen, we're coming up close to time, but I'm I'm pretty keen to find out from each of you one thing um, that we can do to make workplaces better for neurodivergent people. And Lee, you've got the floor. So your one thing.
1: Well, my ask is for the senior leaders and managers because I'm one myself. And it's about um, us as a cohort. We need to try harder to understand the, the diversity of people and to see where we can be more flexible. I mean, everyone's got their limits. And so part of that learning experience is to know where you do have your own strong preference and be able to articulate it to people because it is always a trade-off working with other people. You always get everything you want right. um, but one of the ways you can maybe get better out of your team is to be able to share more about yourself um, and in terms of investing on with in people um, I think it is working with their strengths as much as you can but also being willing to work with them on where they need to address a barrier to their career and to be able to coach them through that and see what that the solution might be whether it's a different role whether it's a different way to um, address a challenge. But again, focus on strengths, but there's also that ongoing work to, to make it work for everyone.
0: Okay. Now, Robin, I suspect you've got more than one thing, but I'm, only, I'm going to limit you to one. <laughs>
1: um,
3: I suppose keeping on trend uh, you know, with, with what we've talked about, about engagement, I would say that my ask is to create opportunities for consultation and engagement with your neurodivergent staff. So don't expect engagement or feedback if you haven't created opportunities for them to engage and if you're not getting responses to that those opportunities then question whether or not they were really accessible you know was it online only or was it in fact only a you know a town hall type meeting give people opportunities to to really engage and communicate with you before you go externally before you try to outsource it so seek seek advice from there and make your systems internally more accessible
2: okay andrew One thing. One thing. My ask is that organisations, particularly in the public sector, but I think this is applicable in the private and other sectors as well, is that they'd consider how neurodivergent strengths are recognised and supported in career pathways. So being autistic, I'm aware that a lot of autistic people have a tendency towards specialist skill sets. I mentioned data and IT earlier. Mm. And what I've found personally is that there are no obvious pathways from being a technical specialist to being a senior executive in the public service. I know that's something that was discussed in the hierarchy and classification review to bring it back to that theme yep. of APS reform. But I'd love organizations to think about how neurodivergent strengths can be better recognized and supported. And to draw it back to Lee's comment earlier about how neurodivergent staff can be given more career progression opportunities towards senior leadership. Excellent. Well, Andrew, Robin
0: and Lee, thank you so much for giving up uh, some of your time to, to share with the audience, to share with the Work With Purpose audience uh, the, today's discussion about what is you know, a critically important part of the future of the APS to ensure that there is that richness we do get that diversity and we really do uh, are able to better serve and carry out the mission so thank you so much for coming into the studio today um, we'll leave links to any studies and statistics that we reference in the show notes today um, uh, for the program so to grow our uh, listeners if you want to engage with our podcast please leave us questions or comments or to reach out uh, to us at IPA ACT or on the contact Content group profiles on LinkedIn or send us an email to events at act.ipa.org.au. And thank you to all of those who did submit questions today for the episode because it enriched our uh, conversation today uh, and While I've got your attention, we'd also love for you to join IPA-ACT for the former Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, Liz Cossens, Secretary Valedictory on the 21st of February. So that's Liz Cosson on the 21st of February. Just head to the act.ipa.org.au website to register and remember to check with your organisation because if they're a member of IPA ACT, you're a member too. And that means that you can attend that event. For free Now, the next episode of Work With Purpose will be out in two weeks' time, but if you can't wait for more insights into the public service until then, you might want to catch up on past episodes. Work With Purpose is on all podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. But last uh, but not least, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review because what happens is that helps us to be found, and we also love hearing about what you think about our little podcast. In our next episode, we'll be talking about LGBTIQ plus pride in the public service. So please send us your questions and reach out via events at act.ippa.org.au. And we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening. My name is David Pembroke, and it's bye for now.
2: Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.